that America is free not because of our military might, but America is free because the light of the gospel has shined in the hearts of men and women for many generations. The holy light of freedom is ablaze in America today because of providence. I'm referring, of course, to divine providence, not some chance or happenstance. No one can understand America without comprehension of our Christian heritage. You can't learn the history of our land apart from it. No signer of the Declaration of Independence was educated but in a non-Christian school. These men were cultured, educated, and sophisticated. But they were men in in whose hearts freedom's holy light burned brightly. It was for that reason the Declaration of Independence contained their pledge to one another and to the world of their lives, their fortunes, and their sacred honor. They they weren't a bunch of poor boys pledging what they didn't have. They were well-to-do men who loved freedom more than they loved their material possessions. Those who first came to settle this land were prompted by religious motivation. Their motive was to find a place where they could worship God according to the dictates of their consciences. They came to establish a land of freedom where every man would be free, free to worship God or not worship God. The early settlers came to these shores seeking first of all not national wealth, but a society of freedom based on righteousness. So before landing at Plymouth, our pilgrim fathers inserted these words into the Mayflower Compact. Quote, We whose names are underwritten have undertaken for the glory of God to establish in Virginia the first colony for the advancement of the Christian faith. And ten years later, other pilgrims said in the New England Federation Compact Agreement, We all have come into these parts of America with one and the same end, namely to advance the kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ. The thing which above all else has made and kept America strong, I believe, is the ethical and spiritual quality of her people. So if we ever lose our moral virility and our spiritual depth, we are gone And no amount of scientific skill or military prowess can put us back on our feet again. Mr. Charles Steinmetz was not a preacher. He was a scientist and for 20 years chief engineer for General Electric Company. In the last year of his life, Mr. Steinmetz said, Our forefathers knew the power of prayer, the importance of Sabbath observance, and the need of family and public worship to this America owes its prosperity and growth. No teacher of history can adequately teach American history apart from our deeply rooted Christian faith and values. I'm not saying that history teachers ought to proclaim and promote Christianity. I am saying that history teachers are not teaching American history when they fail to bring out our debt to our Christian heritage for the greatness that we enjoy today. In 1774, Thomas Jefferson wrote a pamphlet 
in which he contested the right of the British Parliament to enact restrictive legislation against the colonies in America. He contended that Britain had no right to infringe upon the human freedoms of those and appeal to a higher law than the law of Parliament. This man of wisdom and spiritual commitment wrote, quote, The God who gave us life gave us liberty at the same time. The hand of force may destroy but can never disjoin these two. The same God who made us made us to be free. Ruthless tyranny may be able to destroy both life and liberty, but the two can never be separated for to be separate from one another robs the other of its viability, end of quote. Jefferson was both, was both a Christian and a great patriot and recognized that loyalty, to one's, that loyalty to one's nation when he asked, can the liberties of a nation be secure when we have removed the conviction that these liberties are a gift of God? I guarantee on the basis of history, that where this conviction no longer exists, these liberties will not long endure. Freedom has come at a great price. Freedom is never free. This significantly important principle was clearly at work during those painful years in the mid-1700s when the old order was giving way to the new, when the time of separation was near, the beloved patriots such as John Adams understood the cost of liberty. On July the 4th, 1776, the day the Declaration of Independence was formally adopted and signed, Adams said in an address before the Continental Congress, quote, Live or die, sink or swim, survive or perish, I am committed to this Declaration of Independence. I am committed, and if God wills it, I am ready to die that this nation may be free. Because of that declaration, men equipped with little more than hunting rifles and hunting knives went out to battle the greatest nation in the world that day. By human valor and sacrifice, they won the freedom that we enjoy. Freedom is never free. It's bought by blood. It is interesting to note the fate of those 56 men who signed the Declaration of Independence. Nine of them died in the Revolutionary War. Five were captured by the British as traitors and were tortured before they died. Twelve of these men had their homes ransacked and burned. Two lost sons in that war. Carter Braxton of Virginia was a wealthy planter and trader, saw his merchants, merchant ships swept from the seas by the British Navy. He, saw, he sold his remaining possessions and properties to pay his debts and died in rags. Vandals and soldiers are both looted the properties of these men. When his home was taken over by General Cornwallis, Cornwallis of the British Army at the Battle of Yorktown, Thomas Nelson Jr. quietly turned to General George Washington and urged him to open fire on his home. Fire commenced. His home was completely destroyed and he died in bankruptcy. The British arrested the wife of Francis Lewis and she died in prison. John Hart was driven from, his, from the deathbed of his wife along with 13 of his children who fled in terror for their lives. 
In support of the Declaration of Independence, these 56 men pledged three things, their fortunes, their lives, and their sacred honor. Most of them lost the first two, but not one of them lost the last. The errant ways of men had capitalized upon the slavery system of the South in 1861. Citizens had concocted a method through which freedom and the land were extended to some but not to all. The following years of sectional strife, President Lincoln signed the Emancipation Proclamation to set the slaves free. The result was a bloody civil war. Soon fathers fought against sons, brother against brother. A scarred trail of blood and devastation was carved all over this nation because freedom had been threatened. The cost to the nation was best expressed in a letter written by President Lincoln to a Mrs. Bixby of Boston. He said, quote, I've been shown files of the War Department, the statement of the Adjutant General of Massachusetts that you are the mother of five sons who died gloriously on the field of battle. I feel how weak and fruitless must be any work of mine which should attempt to beguile you from the grief of a loss so overwhelming. But I cannot refrain from tendering you the consolation that may be found in the thanks of the republic they died to save. I pray that our Heavenly Father may assuage the anguish of your bereavement and leave you only the cherished memory of the loved and lost and the solemn pride that must be yours to have laid so costly a sacrifice on the altar of freedom. Costly sacrifices must be laid upon the altar of freedom. And so some of you have experienced the wars of Europe. Men die by the thousands. One dear lady, Bess Swenson, gave three sons to the war and said, Freedom is never free. It's bought with my blood. Blood of our sons who died that we might be free. My prayer to God is that the people who say better red than dead, the people who sew the flag to the seat of their pants or burn it in the streets, might hear sweet Bess Swenson say today, freedom is never free, it's bought with my blood. We pay freedom a dear price by humbly admitting that liberty is not ours to own or create. We are recipients of it. We pay freedom's dear price when we surrender personal indulgences for the greater good of the community. When we place the liberty, quote, the liberty of the community over the liberty of the individual, as Franklin Roosevelt phrased it in one of his New Deal speeches. We pay freedom's dear price when we realize freedom is not free. It costs. It costs dearly. It costs us to invest ourselves through love to be servants to one another. Freedom's holy light burns today because men and women have paid the price freedom. And freedom's holy light continues through preparedness. The question often comes, is it, a, is it Christian for a nation like ours to be armed to the teeth and prepared for war? Someone else asked, was Jesus a pacifist? expecting us to follow such a pattern? The fact of the matter is, Jesus died rather than surrender to evil. Never forget that. He gave His life rather 
than to give in to the evil machinations of men. He revealed there are things worth dying for. He did not hesitate to sacrifice his life in order to establish the possibility of peace between man and his maker and between God and his fellow. It is true that Jesus said, All they who live by the sword shall perish by the sword. But taken in the context of the entire New Testament, that can hardly mean there is no place for a sword in the affairs of men and nations. I believe that Jesus was talking about an aggressive spirit that takes the sword to conquer and to bring under dominion those who live by the sword. That is, those who are, who are living to fight and to gain dominance over someone else. If there is no place for the sword among men and nations, this would require total disarmament of the free nation that are set to resist evil and tyranny. Let's say the United States were to unilaterally disarm. What do you think the future would hold? How much success have we had in talking with non-Christian nations and working out just viable and equitable treaties? The possibility for ensuring world stability or world peace would be diminished alarmingly. If we were to follow the line of thinking that says Jesus was a pacifist, which I believe is untrue, that would mean that we would disarm all our police forces and law enforcement agencies, and it would mean that you and I as Christians would have to refuse to protect our families and our homes. Let me give you another verse to think about. Luke twenty-two thirty-six reveals this truth from the lips of Jesus. And he that hath no sword, let him sell his garment and buy one. That's in the Bible too. It is my belief that this was a design for defense and not offense. Surely Jesus was opposed to war. Absolutely Jesus was opposed to killing and to bloodshed. But it is also clearly revealed in the pages of the New Testament that Jesus our Lord taught the right of defense in regard to one's person, one's home, and one's nation. Now, let it ever be affirmed that freedom's holy light stands in opposition to an aggressive warlike spirit based on the desire to conquer and dominate. But thank God, as of today, America never engaged in such a war. It's never been our purpose to conquer and dominate the world. Every war that we've ever been engaged in, including the one in Southeast Asia, has been for the purpose of securing liberty, freedom, and democracy for those who were in danger of being enslaved. The desire or the ambition for national greatness or world domination are foreign to Christian faith. But the willingness to die for oneself or for other people is wholly consistent with the teaching and example of Jesus Christ. That's why He died. He died to make men free. And since our generation is responsible now for freedom's holy light. You need to give attention this morning to the future and that is to provision. We've talked about providence and price and preparedness. What about our provision for the future? We are faced with a question of whether we will settle for dictatorial tyranny or pay the price of liberty and keep the light burning. You and I will make that choice.
Daniel Webster said, God grants liberty only to those who love it and who are always ready to guard and defend it. Were it not for armed resistance in the past and the willingness on the part of patriots to give their lives, there would not be a square foot of free land in this world today. Many who died and are buried on foreign soil gave their lives not because they were committed to war and killing, but because they were committed to freedom and democracy. And we need to thank God for them. And across the century, many of you here and on television and radio have served your nation in the uniform of your country. Not because you were a warmonger, but because you were a lover of freedom. Veterans of war in this generation bear testimony to this fact. And every American is a beneficiary of the freedoms they have secured at the price of blood. Now we can't all represent our country in diplomatic dialogue. We do not have the knowledge or the skill with which that specialized service requires. We can't all split the atom or devise a more powerful weapon or pilot a jet bomber, walk on the moon. Maybe we can't even sing the national anthem. An editorial writer back in the 30s commented that the Star-Spangled Banner was beyond the vocal range of most patriots. But all of us can, by the grace of God, be good people. We can work for righteousness. We can vote for it. We can demand of those in authority over us a brand of justice, honor, and integrity, which will gain the trust and confidences of all the races and peoples of the world. This is the highest height of patriotism. God in His providence has given America a position of world leadership. Never has a nation had a greater opportunity or responsibility than we have now, and we cannot be adequate for it unless using the language of the scout oath we are physically strong mentally awake and above all morally straight. There's one last word I'd like to say about America and that is that in America we have pride. It's amazing to me to see your faces when that flag comes in and when those songs begin. It's one of the most exciting services of the year. Someone expressed the pride that we feel in America in this little poem. If you're proud to be an American, brand new, a native born, then you get a certain feeling each time you greet the morn. The glory of her past seems to live in you today. Then you're proud to be an American, and that feeling's here to stay. I'm proud to be an American. It's where I chose to live. From her mountains to her valleys, she has so much to give. The mighty western prairie, the tall and stately Pine, yes, I'm proud to be an American. I'm proud to call her mine. There's not another place I'd rather call my own, this land of opportunity. I love the kind of life where freedom's flag is flown. The good old USA is for me. If you're proud to be an American, keep, help keep her number one. When you see her flag a-waving its colors in the sun, with 50 stars a-shining against a field of blue, then you're proud to be an American, and I'm proud to be one too. 
There's not another place I'd rather call my own. This land of opportunity, I love the kind of life where freedom's flag is flown. The good old USA's for me. If you're proud to be an American, stand up and clap your hands. From the youngest to the oldest, let all Americans stand. The rhythm of the sound sends a message that is true. You're proud to be an American, and I'm proud to be one too. Now it's easy on the 4th of July to wave the flag and boast of America's strength and accomplishments, but this is a serious time, and no time for empty platitudes or noisy, patriotic oratory. It's rather a time for a national self-examination and for a solemn rededication to the will and the way of the righteous God so that you and I can find the conditions of divine blessing outlined in something which Jehovah God said to King Solomon, If my people who are called by my name shall humble themselves and pray, and seek my face, and turn from their wicked ways, then will I hear from heaven, and will forgive their sin, and heal their land. Here's the formula for winning the divine assistance of God. Here are the spiritual and ethical foundations of national strength and prosperity. If my people shall humble themselves, there is no greater obstacle to the free movement of the Spirit of God than our pride. So if, we're to, if we are to have God's blessings, all our boastfulness must go, all our strutting and condescension must go, and our confession of our need of God must come. If my people shall pray, would you call America a praying nation? Would you even call the Christian people of this country a nation, this country a praying people? Would you call this church a praying church? Come and look some night, some Wednesday night, and, and make your decision when the chapel's half full for prayer meeting. How is it with you, my friend? Could you justly be called a man or woman of prayer? Prayer, according to a famous scientist, is the mightiest force in the world. A nation on its knees is a great nation, and we must not forget it. If my people will seek my face, are we? Is, the, is he the object of our quest? Is his way the goal of our desiring? How can we say that we're seeking God's face when we spend 15 times as much on gambling and alcohol as we do on all humanitarian and religious causes put together. How can we say that God is the goal of our desiring when less than one-third of professing Christians in this country engage in public worship on any average Sunday? And if my people shall turn from their wicked ways, the greatest hindrance to answered prayer is unconfessed, unsurrendered sin. And until we Americans turn from our wicked ways, until we give up our wrongdoing, 
All our pleading for divine aid will be in vain. It matters not how fervent. James Vance said once, it is useless, it is as useless to pray if we continue in known sin as it is to try to light a lamp by turning off the power. The place to begin any national revival is with our own hearts and our own households. Hear me now. America cannot be right until we are right. I want you to ask, will you now ask God to forgive your sin, your pride, your prayerlessness, your wickedness, and will you now dedicate yourself anew to the cause of personal and civic righteousness? Will God bless America? Yes and no. Yes, if we fulfill these simple conditions. No, if we fail. It's up to us. Join me in prayer. Father, we are today humbled by the fact that so many people have sacrificed so much for a freedom we take for granted. We're convicted today that we go on in life day after day ignoring the creator of freedom, the creator of life, never anticipating, never expecting his judgment. And God, I pray today that in my own heart, and in the heart of the people who hear messages across this country today, there might begin a national awakening, a revival to truth, morality, good, a revival to God that will sweep across this land of ours and be the salvation of this country. Give us an awakening like the awakenings that dotted history of this great land, repentance and faith. And let it begin, some heart, this heart today. For I ask in Jesus' name and for His sake. Now, you've anticipated when you came here to a service and an and a presentation of patriotism, and that's what it is. Perhaps you've not anticipated the fact that God calls us to responsibilities, to commitments, to sacrifice, to decision. And so the invitation this morning, the invitations are these for out of this congregation for folks who have never professed their faith in Jesus Christ.
come give their heart and life to Him. And out of this congregation, for folks to place their life in the fellowship of the church, and for people to come and make a new commitment to follow Christ and serve Him as a follower and a servant of God. And so without embarrassment, without shame, I'll ask you to stand. And as we begin our invitation, I'll encourage you to come while we stand and sing.